Hope everybody's doing good. It's always great to gather with all of you on Sunday morning. I actually really look forward to this Sunday. It's been kind of a challenging week on my end, and I do appreciate all of your prayers. I know some of you, hopefully most of you, we stay in contact with each other through our messaging and stuff and kind of let each other know um, some of our struggles and some of our battles and that we can keep each other lifted up in prayer. It's extremely important, especially in the times that we're going through right now in our country and a lot of the confusion and the, just the, it seems it's just a, a consistent um, message of fear and that we should be terrified, we should be scared. And it, it's, it's coming from uh, every arena though. It's not just one-sided now. It just seems like everybody wants us to be scared or wants us to be terrified. And I don't think that's the right way to go as a Christian, as a believer. We're not to be terrified. Um, we're to fear the Lord. And we're not to fear man or what can even happen to us because ultimately at the end of the day, we belong to Christ. I mean, we're not even promised another breath. And we could be, we could walk out the front door today. I mean, heaven forbid we get an accident or something, but you know, anything can happen to us at any time. So we need to be ready at all times, but also we need to stand victoriously in in this hour in history too. We don't want to, we don't want to find ourselves behaving like the world, and I don't mean you're going out and just acting worldly, but uh, in the way that the world handles problems, the way that we deal with problems, we don't want to deal with them in a worldly way and be scared and, and let the fear of death just permeate our existence to such an extent we render ourselves useless for the kingdom of God. Uh, we want to be ready. We want to be firm in our faith. We want to be strong uh, in, in what God has called us to, especially in this day. You know, it's, it's almost like We've always talked about something like this happening in our day. Like we talk about the Reformation and some of these dark times in history that came, but God overcame it with the power of the gospel. And I think, you know, we're experiencing something here that really is is pressing us to such an extent where who we really are is going to come out and who we really stand for and whether we're really truly uh, trusting in Christ. With that being said, turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Psalms, Psalm 142. I know Sean and I have been kind of bouncing in and out of Romans. I haven't completely and totally abandoned Romans. But the reality is, is that I really sense that um, embedded in the Psalms are a lot of um, areas in which we as Christians can identify with. And I think it's very important that we venture into these areas uh, of of the scripture and look at um, things that actually parallel our times at some level, not exactly, obviously, but the scriptures are, are living words of God. They transcend all time and all experiences. So whatever they accomplished in their day, whatever that the Lord had given them in their time and the way that God had changed and sanctified his people in the past, he sanctifies in the present in the same way. We have to uh, recognize these things and be willing to hear what God would have to say to us in these uh, in his word. I'm going to read the entire psalm. There's only seven verses, uh, starting in verse 1. Maskil of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, with my voice unto the Lord did I make supplication. I poured out my complaint before him, 
I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, when thou knewest thy path, in the way wherein I walked, have they privately laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the stability that we have, Lord, not only in your word, but in you. We know that you are the unchangeable God. That all the plans and devices of the world do not shake or move you one iota. You are still on the throne, Lord. You are one that will never be bullied by man. But you are strong and secure. Your kingdom is enduring. Lord, we as the body of believers here cast ourselves upon your mercy this morning. I would ask God that you would just give us the ability to worship you in spirit and in truth. Not in intrepidation. Free us, Lord, from anything throughout this week that would have entangled us or have caught us up or has carried us to a place that we know we shouldn't be. Lord, many of us this week have sinned greatly. Many of us have wandered off the path. Lord, we ask God today that you would grant us repentance and faith, that you would cleanse us of all of our sin. You'd wash us clean of all of our pride, all of our selfishness, all of our greed. You release us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Give us integrity and character, Lord. Help to walk with an honesty that would reflect that we have been converted by the gospel of Christ. Deliver us in this time, this hour in history, Lord, that we can testify that we have been transformed by the power of God. Give us an enduring faith that doesn't back down in the face of much adversity, much contempt, much aggravation. The mocking and the scourge of the world help us to stand strong, Lord. We trust you and thank you, Lord. Bless the proclamation of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and so be it. Amen. My focus, I'll be focusing on the text of 142.4, Psalm 142.4, where the psalmist cried out. He said, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cares for my soul. I originally had titled this message, calling it from... A man cave to God's cave. From a man's cave to the God cave. I name this in response to what many men today have called their private places of retreat with the 
term they call their man cave. What exactly is a man cave, anyways? Well, here's a couple definitions that can help us define this. A man cave is a part of a house or a small building near a house where a man can go to get away from the other people in the house and do things that he wants to do. A man cave is a room or other area in the home that is primarily a male sanctuary designed and furnished to accommodate the man's recreational activities and hobbies. The Urban Dictionary defines it this way, a room, a space, a corner area of a dwelling that is specifically reserved for a male person to be in solitary condition, away from the rest of the household in order to work, play, involve himself in certain hobbies and activities without any interruption. This area is usually decorated by the male that uses it without interference from any female influence. Well, here's the uh, best man cave essentials of 2021. First one is every man cave needs a game console, PlayStation. This, this is how we can escape reality into the world of fantasy. Second one is he needs a sound system to impress his male companions and drown out the wife and kids. Number three, he needs a big screen TV. Number four, he needs comfortable furniture, a place to relax and kick back. He needs cool lighting. He needs a refrigerator with a built-in keg. He needs memorabilia from his glory days. This is the part that separates your man cave from all the others. You need... Uh, sports paraphernalia, art and decor on the walls. And of course, you need a storage place, number nine, to store all your stuff. And the last but most important part of your man cave is that you need a cave sign, calling it your wonder cave on your hidden man cave door. I'll believe the whole man cave idea for men has been fostered by a culture that is infatuated with this new, dare I say, man-baby idea of what men should look like. As if he needs to somehow retreat from life and his family and fill his unmet needs with football and video games, whatever else satisfies and pacifies his stressful life with the demands of what it means to really being a man. Well, this may be the remedy for today's male. Notice I didn't say man. It certainly was not God's idea for David, in whom the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. You see, David's cave, his place of refuge, would not be filled with worldly amusements and self-fulfillment. It was just the opposite. His place of recourse would be undesirable and really not even fit for human habitation. It is here where David would come face to face with reality. A man completely stripped of self and totally trusting in his God. It would become a turning point in David's life from total abandonment from the world to being recklessly abandoned to his God. The cave was God's means to train his student in the 
art of leadership. Character and integrity are never grown in the rose gardens and comforts of life, but are established in the fiery furnaces, lion's dens, which to the world are ugly failures, but to us they are the incubators of growth and godly maturity. The state of David in the cave of Adullam was a state of utter destitution. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge had failed me, and no man careth for my soul. Have you ever been there in your life? Have you ever gotten to that place in your own life where you had felt that there wasn't a human being on the planet that cared about you? Have you ever got to that place in life where your friends or maybe even it's family or those that you have put a lot of stock in and a lot of trust in had become silent to your needs, betraying a trust that you had spent a lifetime to put together? See, Psalm 142, it calls it a, what's, uh, it's called a masculine. It really is, it's a verb uh, to give wisdom. To give wisdom to David. A prayer when David, listen, was in the cave, it says. Not when David was wandering around the cave. It doesn't say when David was looking at the cave or David could have went into the cave or this is all about caves. This reality is, that this wisdom was injected into David when he was in the cave. This is what had changed him and pushed him, if you will, to seek his true refuge, who was in Christ alone. A masculine is actually a term that is found as a title in 13 other Psalms. It means to instruct or to make to understand. It denotes a song enforcing some lesson of wisdom or piety, or what would be called a didactic song, moral teaching, a moral truth. This very title of the psalm should awaken us to the plight of this restless king. This one who by the very hand of God saw giants dropped and slain, armies decimated, kingdoms conquered. One who saw his own life as one sucked out of obscurity and placed over thousands in the very city of God, Jerusalem. The one who once cried out, blessed be the Lord, my strength which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. In Psalm 18, verse 29, he says, For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. This is David under the power of God. These are things that this man had experienced in the sanctifying realities of life. I'm not sure if any of you have ever been hunted down or chased or have had your life put in extreme danger or have been overcome with a suffocating fear that 
reaches such an intensity that your very soul faints and you're left speechless. Human language can't even properly define your situation. Your pain, your disappointment, your fear, anxiety, and your trauma is displayed with groanings that Romans 8.26 says cannot even be uttered. To a person is put in such a predicament in life to where you're the apex of your pain reaches to such an extent you can't even define it. The only way that you can define it is just by groans of pain before Almighty God. And this is where David was. He was pressed by his enemies. He was pushed into this cave, into this what we could call almost a womb, an incubator. We're pressed to such an extent that all he can do at this point is cry out to God. At one point in 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, David even said, Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. And this is where we find our failing friend. In deep in anguish, stripped bare, faced, pressed against his own personal wailing wall. And this would be the cave of Adullam. The cave was probably, you know, it probably was, as most historians would agree, it was the cave of Adullam. Mentioned in 1 Samuel 22, 1, uh, though the caves of Engedi also are mentioned in, in uh, 1 Samuel 24, verse 1, are also a possibility. Adullam seems to be the best fit, which would suggest that Psalms 34 and 57 are also associated with this period of David's life. It's interesting to note, by the way, that most archaeologists believe that the cave of Adullam was not too far from the place where David defeated Goliath. You know, that, that right there could cause a person to stop and think that here God had David in one of his most tragic moments of life but he didn't leave him in complete and total despair because he gave him a view from his sliding glass window of his cave of the valley of Elah where his greatest victory had taken place and you think about it the valley of Elah kind of got him in this situation to begin with slaying giants and Offending vile kings and prideful men will definitely put you in very tough positions in life. I'd like to consider two points this morning as we move through this message that we see in this chapter. It's broken literally down into two thoughts. Uh, we see two places in which Scripture shows us. Two places of refuge. Two places of refuge. One being the cave, the other being God himself. As G. Campbell Morgan says, there are two notes running side by side throughout this song. The first is that of this terrible sense of helplessness and hopelessness so far as man is concerned. The other is that of the determined appreciation, application of the helpless soul reaching out to Jehovah. 
dealing with our first point, dealing with this area of refuge in a physical sense, would be the cave of Adullam, which actually literally means a place of refuge. This cave was never in God's providence to be David's refuge, but a place of desperation, a prayer bunker, if you will, a reality check, a sobering reminder that when all is said and done, we must find our rest and relief and refuge in the loving arms of our Savior. The psalmist says in 60, uh, Psalm 62, verse 8, he says, Trust in him at all times. O oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly, heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In some ways, this cave represents a type and a picture and a shadow of who our true refuge is. And many times that the Lord will press us into situations in our lives that will bring us to a place where we should never be in, the Christian should never be in despair. Because we have nothing to despair if we have Christ. But wherever our circumstances bring us, we must remember ultimately at the end of the day, that these circumstances must and always point us to Christ. We see temporary relief that David had fleeing from his enemies, from all those that he had loved and had trusted. Now we're chasing him down, basically into a rabbit hole. But this cave itself was never a place of fulfillment, of satisfaction. He's reached a place where he may be temporarily protected for a while. But the reality is this closing in literally was almost like a surgical operation to take David out and turn him to have a full dependence upon God. This dark and gloomy hollowed out cave, which anytime we read about caves in Scripture... Their meaning usually is in conjunction with a grave, a place of death. This is a true picture of what we would call even despair, discouragement, and really what we'd say, the end of self. If you study out the words and you look at what the caves really represent with the Old and the New Testament, you always find that there is something to do with death. So, in actuality, David here was sent to his grave. He went into the grave, and there, literally, obviously, as we will see, that everything in his life, every comfort, everything that he would trust in, everything that he had established through his life that would bring him some kind of security, some kind of strength, something that he could siphon from as a place of trust and confidence, everything was wiped out from him. Everything. And he was left literally stripped and bare, alone in this dark cave. And this is where literally he came to his death. In 142.1 he says, With my voice I cried out to the Lord. With my voice I plead 
for mercy to God. I pour out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. You got to understand something. David, David had written these psalms out later in his life. So you have to remember that this is almost like scar tissue here. See, this remembrance of these times must have been extremely painful. He went on to say in verse 3, when my spirit fainted, literally fainted within me, or as one translation puts it, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Matthew Henry writes, the state of David in the cave of Adullam was a state of utter destitution. It was a great disgrace to so great a soldier, so great a courtier to be in such shifts for his own safety and a great terror to be so hotly pursued at every moment in expectation of death. Prayer and tears were his only weapons. You see, David pressed in and his default, his default turned to God crying out to God in utter desperation, crying out to God and pleading for mercy. And I I think at times in our lives, we need this to happen to us. We need everything to be shaken. And I I know that none of us wants this. No one wants to be uncomfortable. No one wants to be put in a position like this that causes within us that kind of turmoil. But the reality is it seems to me that God ordained that turmoil so that the Lord, he would know that the Lord knew his way, knew his path. It was the ingredients that he needed to develop him into the leader that he was to become. I looked on my right hand, he says, and beheld The NASB says, renders it, look to the right and see. In other words, he is saying in this sense, look to my right and see, in the sense communicating where. He's saying, look, there's nothing, basically. He's not saying, look to my, my, I looked at my right hand and there was someone standing there that wouldn't answer me. What he's saying is, look, see, there's nothing there. There's no one there. And this is the startling reality of it all because there was nothing there. There was nothing to grab. There was no one to call upon for help. But there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, for no man cared for my soul. The Geneva Bible says none would know me. None cared for my soul. You know, that sounds pretty desolate, you know, because the reality is is that God has designed humanity in the social regions of who we are and how we're made to have one another. And we can become dysfunctional by being disconnected. Do you realize that? And it's God's idea. God is trying by nature. The whole idea of community reflects the Trinity. And the whole idea of the church, the body of the living God that comes together, it's Christ's idea. This isn't our idea. We can just form this club of a bunch of people that want to come in and sing certain songs and behave in a certain way with our book and our building. This is what Christ has ordained for us as people to not just say, be successful in life, but to get through life. 
And I know for my own sake, and probably you could testify to this, when you have been in that area of neglect where you've been all alone, or at least you felt, as you felt, as, as what was it, Elijah felt that there was, that everybody was gone and he was all alone, but God said, I had reserved 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. He comforted him, comforted him in this reality. There, there are others out there who love me just as much as you do, or possibly more than you do. There are men and women out there who still love God, who still serve God, and who are not going to be deterred or pushed away. But he looked to his right hand. He looked for that meaningful relationship of how we're created, and it wasn't there. Everything had been turned out. See, the right hand was referred to as the direction where he might look for a protector. David's default, his right hand, the place where the what they would call a patron or an assistant used to stand. Basically, this would be his bodyguard. This would be someone that would assist him. If there was trouble, he would call upon his patron to step in. Almost like a personal bodyguard. Someone with a shield and spear would be there for him to protect him and offer him comfort in his time of need. And this, this, this signifies this reality by looking to his right hand, looking for that helper, almost would have been a default for David. It'd be such a habit. Like we look at our cell phones all the time. He'd be looking just automatically, just without even really thinking about the reality, unconsciously. He just automatically, when trouble came, he looks to his right hand. But he looked to his right hand, and that place of security and confidence had been completely and totally obliterated. So he's left with that crushing feeling of being all alone. And I think at times we can get ourselves too connected in some way to where we begin to trust in the strength of men or we strunk in the strength of other people, even the strength of our pastor or whatever, and we stop relying on God and we start wearing people out. And it gets to the point to where we are, we are living in a way where we're putting too much of our trust, too much of our comfort in this confidence, in this reality in other people. And this could very well be what God is trying to teach David by stripping him away of all of those defaults, all of those things that he had grown so comfortable with, so used to grabbing for comfort, these pacifiers in life that people grab a hold of for comfort and to be nursed and to be held and to be and this this almost this, this affection that isn't really Christ himself. And God strips us of these of these areas in our lives so that we would be grafted back in it if we could use that word, but we could be rightly pushed back to God. And pray to God. Ask God, God, grant me those affections. As Paul said, stir them up. How do we stir them up? By getting into the word, by praying, by getting around the people of God, by singing his praises, by not allowing ourselves to be caught up and held captivated by the world. Because what happens is we start to slip with our walk with Christ. We begin to look at other things in the world to please us and to satisfy us and to take care of us and meet those needs that only God truly can meet. There was no man that cared for his soul, at least he thought. And this is really the place where 
I think it amplifies this idea that, of course, people cared for David. We know that there's people who cared for David. But we know when we're that person that's stuck in that situation, all kinds of irrational thoughts come through. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. I mean, put, your, put yourself in his shoes, what was going on in that very moment, and you tell me you would have thought the very same thing. John Gill says he could get no help from men, so there was no way open for his escape. There was no way open for his escape. But there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Spurgeon says it's not that they didn't know him, but that they wouldn't know him. Ouch. It's not that they didn't know him. It's that they wouldn't know him. It was a choice on their end that we've chosen not to know you. Feel that? The fact that David, although surrounded by a band of loyal subjects, confesses to having no true friend, it is to be understood similarly to the language of Paul when he says in Philippians chapter 2.19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. This, this reality is known throughout all of the word of God that, that we need to have the comfort in other genuine believers. Not only for the fact that it lays the foundation and affirms us in the walk that we have with Christ, but also cheers us up. I don't know about you guys, but it cheers me up when I, when I hear from you during the week or you allow me to express some things going on in my own life. You know, I know Trey will reach out to me at work sometimes. And it's just little things like that you don't think is a big deal. But what that does, it adds a certain level of confidence and strength uh, in our lives. Because if you're a true believer, life is hard. Life is hard. No matter where you are, it seems like you're always working against the grain, doesn't it? It always seems like there's something that, that's wanting to corner you wherever you turn. And then you get a little text and, you know, you got uh, Brother Sean chasing me around. He's always, you know, he's always giving me a good word of encouragement. But that's the way we should be. We don't need a bunch of inducement of fear and scare tactics. We do encourage each other in the strength of Christ, that he ultimately is our refuge. And we don't have to worry about what all these different news channels are, are all these signals that are being sent to us and trying to scare the daylights out of us. We're not going to go there with them. We're not going to play that game. I thought it was interesting, uh, a quote by Robin Williams, the, the movie star who committed suicide. He wrote an interesting quote. He said this, I used to think the worst thing in life was to end up all alone. It's not. The worst thing in life is ending up with people who make you feel all alone. And I, I would say that this might have been where David was, because we know he had friends, he had accomplices, he had people around him. But he was in that place, you know, he's in that place of just absolute, um, uh, just desperation. And I, I think at some level, God puts us there, and we don't, we're not understood by people. We're not understood by a majority of the church. 
today in America. They don't understand the reality of pain and desolation and this deep embedded hunger to serve God or when we're being chased down or we're being aggravated or we're being pushed in the corner. They, they, they don't understand that lifestyle because in, in, in America we have changed. We, we, at least we have, they have tried to change what Christianity is. They try to redefine what Christianity is. And most of it out there isn't Christianity at all. It's a cult. Biblical Christianity is the minority in this country. It really is. And you'll always be the minority no matter where you are in this world. And it may be in your own home. We must press on and trust the Lord. The cave really was a picture of the end. Dave cave, David came to his end and he lay there practically in his own grave cave. It was here in truth. Death, everything that he thought could bring him life. And in his agony. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. This, is an, this idea is here, take up your cross. What is that affiliated with? What picture do you get when you hear the cross? Death. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Not help yourself, but deny yourself. Die. And then come and follow me. 1 Corinthians 15.31 says, Paul said, I protest. Here's a great protest here if you want to talk about protest. He says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. What you could protest to the world is this reality that you die daily. What you can profess to the church around you and the people of God and your family, your wife, your children, everybody you come in contact with, this is what you can protest. You can testify before them that you are a man or a woman that dies daily. Which brings us to our second point, Christ being our refuge. In verse 5 he says, I cried unto thee, O Lord, I said, Thou art my refuge. And my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. It doesn't take a, a theologian, a great theologian, to understand what's being said in these words. It's pretty obvious what's going on here. He's crying out to God because you know what? Ultimately, at the end of the day, that cave really ain't doing a whole lot. It's not bringing him any kind of satisfaction or fulfillment. He's got to reach beyond the windows of that cave and reach out to God. But if it wasn't for the cave, I'm not sure if he would be reaching out. We know that uh, the presupposition here, the premise is that he was pushed to the cave, obviously because he is being chased by those that, whom he loved, who betrayed him, and now wanted him, not captured, but wanted him dead. He's running from his family, who he thought he could trust, now that wanted to basically take his head off, shoved into a cave. The cave really becomes his wailing wall. He's crying in there, but ultimately, through that cave, he's calling out to God, his true refuge. Letting God know, listen, I am brought very, very, very low. As a matter of fact, even, you know, we, we could look at this and say, he says, bring my soul out of prison. But we know a soul can be a human, a person. And we know that prison cell could have been that cave, right? He says, bring my soul out of prison. That I'm, 
may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. There's no negativity here. There's no condemnation about having the righteous compass you about, having others in your life um, to help you walk out the Christian life. And I would tell you today as family uh, here today that if you are in that place where you are brought very, very, very low or you're just low and you feel like you can't come into the house of God and you can't be transparent or vulnerable, that's not a good thing. Um, This church should be conducive for you to come in and be able to talk to someone and say, I am struggling. My soul is, is very low. Trusting that the righteous shall compass you about and help you deal bountifully with these things. The Lord wants us to look to Him. The Lord has brought you to these places in your life. This isn't some self-help message. This is reality. God brought you to wherever you are today. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, whatever area of despair or fear or whatever scare tactic you've allowed into your life, just know that's not the end. That's not the end. It wasn't the end of David. And he was in a much worse situation than we are. He tasted, he was tasting death. And he called upon the Lord. God used his situation, not for David's sake though. He used his situation to bring David to himself. So if we would change our perspective and we would say, yes, I'm in a very uncomfortable position in my life. It's extremely painful, very confusing, and at times even chaotic. Know that God has brought you there, that you would look to him. He's saying you do need a refuge. You do need a refuge. You do need a place to go. You do need a church to gather. But this is the remedy for your soul. I am the remedy for your soul. I am the refuge of your soul. I am the eternal one. This is a place where we come and we gather, but ultimately at the end of the day, we come to gather because we have a greater refuge and his name is Jesus Christ. In Psalm 109.30, the psalmist says, I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. He will stand at the right hand of the poor. He was the one that was poor in spirit and broken and dropped and in desolation. Yeah, his bodyguard may not have been there, but I'll tell you what, right here, the word of God says that God himself is at the right hand of the poor. God says, yes, yes, your patron, he's not there. He's not at your right hand, but I am. And we know that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of power, making intercession, not for the world, but for his people. The Bible says in Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's your cave. Never in a million years would I ever want to call Jesus Christ a cave. But what I'm saying, he is our refuge. He is our hiding place. He is our safe place. He is our strong tower. He is the refuge of our soul. Hebrews 2.3 says, how shall we escape 
How shall we escape with any other remedy, any other way? There's only one way. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You won't. You won't escape. That's why Christ is our only escape. Don't look to man. Do not look to the world. Do not look to yourself, but look to Christ, who is our refuge and the very anchor of your soul. Just remember, Christ was rejected so we can be, believe it or not, accepted. We hear the prophetic cry in Psalm 22, verse 1, when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? Which is echoed in, in Matthew 27. Jesus cried it out upon the cross. He understood exile. He understood that. He bore the full weight of that. So when we trust him through the power of the Spirit, he can identify with our pain. He said to them, Jesus said, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Quick application before we break free today. Remind you just of a few things. Number one, identify and take ownership of where you are in this life. If we could just put it more blank, identify your cave in this life. Identify something that you may be in right now. Instead of losing control and getting worldly and using other things to be your default, okay, and your pacifier, if you're in this place, if you're in the cave, recognize that this temporary spot really is pointing you to the great refuge of our Lord and Savior. I like what Leonard Ravenhill said. He says, you say I need a vacation. He says, you don't need a vacation. You need a cave. Number two, just realize the absolute necessity of your need of the gospel. Realize your absolute need of the gospel. Remember the demoniac in Mark 5, 4, it said that no one could tame him. Nothing in this world can tame an unregenerate soul. And nothing in this world can tame a regenerate soul in sin. We're not looking to be tamed by the things of the world and hypnotized and under a spell and medicated to the world. We want to make sure that we're trusting in the gospel. It says that the woman in Luke 8.43, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. But Christ could. That's why it's so important that we take ourselves to Christ. David prayed when he was in the cave, but later when he was in the palace, just remember, he fell into temptation and sin with Bathsheba. Sometimes palaces don't cause us to cry out to God like that. Palaces actually may cause us to move in another direction that actually sins against God. Number three, all help is not in vain. The psalmist cried out, bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name and the righteous shall compass me about. Get locked in, as Sean had said last Sunday, get locked into a church. Get locked in. Become part of the local church. It could be a grubby place. It could be a lot of things going on here that you just, you know... Um, You've got to deal with it. We're people. We're human beings. We're humans. We have problems. We have sin. We, we, we struggle. 
Um, but get yourself locked in to a biblical church. And don't leave. And the last point is run to Christ. Run to Christ. An author once wrote, he said this, and I'll leave you with this. You will run somewhere for refuge in the middle of trouble when you are in the heat of the battle. You'll run somewhere for refuge. You'll run somewhere for rest, comfort, peace, encouragement, wisdom, healing, and strength. There is only one place to run where true protection, rest, and strength can be found. You and I must learn in life and ministry to make the Lord our refuge. Perhaps in trouble you run to other people, hoping that they can be be your personal Messiah. Perhaps you run to entertainment, hoping to numb your troubles away. Maybe you run to a substance trying to trying your best to turn off the pain. Maybe you are tempted to run to food or sex, fighting pain with pleasure. Since none of these things can provide the refuge that you seek, putting your hope there tends only to add disappointment to the trouble you're already experiencing. God really is your refuge and strength. Only he rules every location where your trouble exists. Only he controls all the relationships in which disappointment will rear its head. Only he has the power to rescue and deliver you. Only he has the grace you need to face what you are facing. Only he holds the wisdom that in trouble you so desperately need. Only he is in, with, and for you at all times. He is the refuge of refuges. Do you run to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning in your word and in the presence of one another, the fellowship of the saints, Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for exposing us to the truth in a world so polluted by vanity and lies. Lord, make us a a grateful people. Lord, a humble people and a quiet people, Lord. Help us to walk in that humility, Lord. But help us, Lord God, to confront not only the evil that lurks in our own hearts, but to leave the evil that seeks to destroy us outwardly as well. Lord, we commit the rest of this Lord's Day in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.